sin is permanently inscribed upon their hearts. But in the new covenant work of God, that sin that was written with a diamond-tipped pencil has been erased, and instead it's going to be the, the name of the Lord. It will be God's teaching that's inscribed on their hearts. So there's a huge shift in what happens through God's covenantal working as they move out of exile and ultimately in Jesus Christ as he inaugurates the new covenant. There's a heart transformation that's really hard to describe here. Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, week 43 of reading through the Bible in a year with Jesus. We're in Jeremiah uh, 18, going through chapter 32 for our Old Testament passage. Now, Matthew, as you and I were reading Jeremiah, we really appreciated it, but AJ didn't really like our starting point in chapter 18. Why is that? I started reading again in chapter 18. And you get just a couple verses in to verse 12, and the people are replying to Jeremiah's message, saying, Don't waste your breath, Jeremiah. We will continue to live as we want to, stubbornly following our own evil desires. And I just knew that that's, nothing's going to change. Just kicking off this section, and it's bad news. Yeah, it does start out without a lot of hope that Jeremiah's prophetic utterances will be listened to. But that's kind of the theme in Isaiah and Jeremiah, right? Where God sends these individuals and he's going to harden their hearts like he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. But Jeremiah has his own kind of struggles here as he's being plot against, put into prison right at the end of the reading. Yeah. So I don't know. It seems like he had kind of a tough job. Sometimes it seemed like being a prophet was kind of a thankless job. Everybody's just mad at you because they're like, wait, we want to keep doing what we want to keep doing. And it seems like there were other prophets that were telling, not real prophets, but other people calling themselves prophets that were giving a different, more palatable message to the people. Yeah. And the king, they liked that stuff better. And it seems like there's specific judgment because they listened to that message and not the message that Jeremiah was giving. Or even the prophets themselves were going to be judged. It's like they were going to go to Babylon and they're going to die and all their kids are going to die and they're never coming back. Bad news. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's no good. Jeremiah was from Anathoth, and he died in Tophni of Egypt, having been stoned by his people. He was buried in the environs of Pharaoh's palace because the Egyptians held him in high esteem, having been benefited through him. For he prayed, and the asps left them, and the monsters of the waters, which the Egyptians call Nephoth, threw him. Oh, and the Greek crocodiles. And those who are God's faithful pray at the place to this very day. And taking the dust of the place, they heal asps bites. That's hard to say. Asps, asps bites. bites. And we have heard from the children of Antigonus and Ptolemy, old men, that Alexander the Macedonian, after standing at the prophet's grave and witnessing his mysteries, transferred his remains to Alexandria and placed them in a circle around the city with due honor. And the whole race of asps was kept from the land and from the river, likewise, the crocodiles. Is that true? All that? Yeah. No? It's fan fiction. Ugh. But I like it. These pagan people revered Jeremiah more than his own people. That is probably All right, right on track. Set me straight. What's the point of that, then, if it's fake? 
Well, I mean, it's kind of like I was I was ex- explaining it this way to someone last night. You know how we have TV shows like The Chosen and we fill in gaps with information that is we're making up, but it also helps contribute to the story and it helps us imagine things a little bit more. That's kind of what they are doing in books like this. The very first few verses of our uh, section for this week, I found delightful and intriguing. And I was surprised because um, the first section of Jeremiah was a little bit painful for me to read there. Uh, I didn't have a whole lot of whatever for it. But this first part, I wanted to ask you a question about Aaron, not AJ. No, I'll ask AJ also. I'll ask that. Yeah, ask both of us. I'll ask anybody. Um, It talks about going to a potter and he's trying to make something and it gets screwed up. Then he makes something else out of it and he's like, this seems good. This is good. It's still useful. It's not what I intended because it got screwed up, but it's still useful. And then uh, God was kind of saying, he's like, that's you guys. I was doing something with you and then you guys screwed it up but I can still use you. It just might be a little bit different. Is that what that's saying? Yeah, I think you're mostly on track. He's using an analogy, though, because in the analogy, the clay doesn't cause the problem. It becomes flawed in the potter's hands. So we're not intended to draw too close of an analogy where the problem is God's fault, as if he's failed to guide Israel in the right way. But it is an apt analogy because it shows that even though Israel is not shaping out to be what they should be, God is still going to do something through it, but um, it's not going to be very desirable for these individuals because it's going to happen through judgment. Purely for clarification, did it sound like I was implying that God screwed it up? No. Okay, good. Because I wasn't trying to. But you're saying that there yeah, could be Yeah, I'm just elaborating there. for people who might think, think oh, well, the clay didn't mess itself up. Right. Okay. So, I, th- I see what so that's why it's just an analogy. Right. But I, I thought that was good. Because I think that could apply to all of our lives. Like, like, oh, man, you screwed it up. But it's like, all right, don't worry. We can rework the clay. We can still make something usable out of this. You know what I mean? I found it encouraging. I don't know. Am I way off here? It reminds me there's a similar analogy in the New Testament, isn't there, Aaron? Or Matthew? Aaron? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think in Romans 9, Paul says something similar. He uses similar language, uh, but there he, of course, emphasizes the fact that the potter can do whatever he wants with the clay. Here, there's this indication that the original vessel hasn't shaped up as it should. Throughout Jeremiah, we get insights into his life where he's beat up, he's imprisoned. Things are not going well for Jeremiah. And there's an instance in Jeremiah 20 where he has been seized and beaten and carried off, and he complains to the Lord that he doesn't really want to keep doing this prophet business. He doesn't want to keep preaching. So um, he goes into this poetic mode But eventually he says, even though I don't want to do this, the message that God put in him has become a fire burning in my heart 
shut up in my bones. I'm tired of holding it in and I cannot prevail. So he must preach the word. This text is where the title for the authorized biography of Eugene Peterson comes from, called A Burning in My Bones. And I just think this is probably every preacher's favorite text to draw upon when they really are struggling and don't really enjoy what they're doing, but also feel that compelling by the Lord to preach the word. And probably that's how all of us should feel is we know the word of God in the gospel. And even though it's not always easy or comfortable or fun to declare it, the gospel should be like a fire burning in our heart, shut up in our bones. I like that. What's that do for you, AJ? You seem to be mulling it over. Yeah, I, I don't normally have the the urge to talk about anything to anybody. <laughs> so it's just really interesting that a pastor would sp- would probably really identify with this verse. So I get that. But also I appreciate that the rest of us should also take that as we have an incredibly important message to, to tell people. Yeah, and I would want to draw a connection to Pentecost and Acts 2 where the Spirit sort of descends, fills people, appears like fire, and we are indwelt by the Spirit, and there's a different kind of burning in our bones, which is to declare the message of the Lord enabled by the Spirit, so that even when we aren't quite certain what to say, we have the Holy Spirit leading us and directing us as we declare the truth of the gospel. So if you have the Holy Spirit, AJ, you have a burning in your bones. I guess so. Here's a little trivia question for you guys. In Jeremiah 21, 8, the Lord says, Look, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. To which Old Testament text should our minds be directed with that phrase? Genesis. False. No. It is in the Pentateuch. Uh, wait. Tree of life. No, I'm setting before you, you life and death. That was the fruit on the tree. Uh, yeah, that's different. It's mm. close. Yeah. Have have points for that. Right, yeah, I think you. you're combining the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the uh, tree of life. But, you know, it's not the tree of life and death. I'm going to go with Deuteronomy again. Eight. Deuteronomy eight. <laughs> Teen. Nope. Now, last time I think you said Deuteronomy 8.13, because that might have been the text in Jeremiah. (laughs) It is to the exact same Old Testament passage where Moses sets before them life and death, and he calls them to choose life this day. Well, now God is putting before them the way of life and death, and he's calling them to choose life. Now, in the Deuteronomy context, the way to choose life is by maintaining covenant faithfulness and going to battle and taking the promised land. Here, it's going away in exile and maintaining covenant faithfulness with God. But the point is, the this, this same covenant is at play here. This time, though, God is saying, if you want to live, don't resist me. It's like those times when Israel was failing to obey God by not taking over a portion of the land, and then he threatened them with judgment. And he said, I'm not going to give you the land. And they're like, no, we're going to go anyway. He's like, well, if you do, you're going to die. And they go and they die. Well, here he's telling them, don't fight against the Babylonians. Go into exile. Is this the only time that God commands them to voluntarily go into exile? That doesn't ever happen anywhere, does it? 
anywhere else? I don't know. Or doesn't? That's a good question. Maybe we'll find out as we keep reading through the Old Testament. Like I said before, it's not all just doom and gloom. There are glimmers of hope throughout, and there's going to be judgment on the kings. But when I got to chapter 23, it seemed like there was a little bit more hopeful note that there will be a descendant that will that will come who is righteous and will reign righteously. What did you guys think reading through that that section? Yeah, I think that's right. There are obviously words of hope that creep into the oracles of judgment and in chapter 23 the two come together here where there's an oracle of judgment against these shepherds who have failed to tend to the flock. But then there's the word of hope that the Lord will raise up his own shepherd, and the name he will be called will be the Lord is our righteousness. As we look forward to that day, in the next verses in chapter 23, starting in verse 7, the kind of shepherding act that this new shepherd will bring will rival the kind of deliverance that the Israelites received when they left Egypt. So no longer when they talk about the Lord will they say, we worship the Lord who brought us out of Egypt. Instead, we worship the Lord who brought us out of exile. Which would be a huge shift because that is a very defining thing for these people. Exactly. So all through the Old Testament, that's how you identify the God who you worship and serve. And I think very significantly, at the start of the Ten Commandments, the law code for the Old Covenant, the reason that they should obey these things is because the Lord, the God who brought them out of Egypt, is commanding them to do it. Well, pretty soon we're going to get to the new covenant, and now we should obey because there's been a new kind of exodus, and we will be in a new covenant with new covenant legislation, and it's that deliverance act that we'll call to mind when we talk about obeying the Lord, not that we've been released from Egypt. And I think as we get into New Testament text, that's exactly what we find. So, for example, in Ephesians, the reason you forgive is because God has forgiven you. So we pick up on this new kind of deliverance that will guide the life and obedience of the new covenant people of God. Just like seeing Egypt a lot. And I'm like, what are we talking about Egypt? Aren't we done with Egypt? You know what I mean? Like, I don't think of it more outside of On to Babylon. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but Egypt is still their prototypical captivity situation. Sure. So Comparing I think, those. Yeah, and I think what's coming to mind here is that Babylon is going to be the new Egypt for them. Like the rivers of Babylon? <laughs> is oh, I see the rivers doing. of Babylon a song? It just might be. Who sang it? Boney M. Who's Boney M? I don't know. I think they were like a disco Is that group? like Bon Jovi? No. That's although, a singer. Although I think they toured together. Are you serious? No. <laughs> also, this intro is way longer than I thought. I <laughs> love it. It is kind of pretty. It allows us to keep talking. Now, the great thing about 
that song is that Israel is being sent into Babylon and they're told if you don't resist, you will live. And in fact, in chapter 29, they are instructed to pursue the well-being of the city because in that city, if the city thrives, they're going to thrive. So they should pray for the Lord on Babylon's behalf, which sounds similar to the way the New Testament authors talk about Christians and Rome, which is just another iteration of Babylon. And I think that's how every Christian should think about the country that they're in until the Lord returns, is you should try to pray for it. You should find your flourishing in their flourishing. God will give you everything that you want, and you can know that God has the plans that he has for you, plans that are good and not for disaster, to give you future and a hope. I feel like you're ruining the great point that I'm trying to make here, (laughs) AJ, but... Uh, whatever. If I could. You can. Fun fact about the song. The lyrics are just uh, Psalm 137, like a few verses from it. Wait. Yeah. In the King James. See? It's biblical. Yeah, so, of course, if we were listening to the lyrics or reading, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So this is a exile period psalm, probably. The lament of the exiles. And that's what we're getting into here. Here's the chorus. Now, of course, that psalm gets dark because it goes on to say, Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who pays you back what you have done to us. Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Ouch. They don't get to that in the song. It stays pretty positive. Yeah, it sounds a little bit positive for the lament of the exiles. Yeah. You know, lemonade out of lemons. Getting back to Jeremiah 29, I'm sure we've all heard people randomly throw around Jeremiah 29.11. I remember people, who knows, random people in college, ah, my favorite verse, my life verse, Jeremiah 29.11, God loves me and I will prosper and have a great life all the time. Ah. It's like, that's how they quoted it. And I was just like, all right, cool. Sounds like a good verse. I don't know. But it's like, what are they doing? They're, it seems very out of context. Not that God wants us to be miserable and have bad lives, but it's like the way they're grabbing it and cherry picking it, I feel like is reckless. <laughs> I feel like that's the most cherry picked verse of the Bible. It probably when is. When people are like, this is my life verse. For both my eighth grade graduation and high school graduation, our class choir sang a song based on these lyrics. Yeah. And probably like every Christian school does that. Right. It's so cherry-picked. Now, I think one thing that's cool about, I think it was that whole chapter of 29, but it's like, all right, there's something about 70 years. Like, I don't know, they're in exile for 70 years or they're in like timeout for 70 years or something like that. But God's like, look, 
live your life, have families, get some land, grow some crops, make the most of it. It's for 70 years, but deal with it. You can still have some nice things, but like make the most of a bad situation. Get some lemons out of your lament. It's like that was nice and that was positive. But then, you know, there is a very nice verse, verse 11, kind of in the middle of that. But it's not like these people were just living in sunshine and roses, daisies, petunias. I don't know. But it's like it's not like everything was phenomenal. They were making the best out of a bad situation, even though they were like in the middle of enduring punishment. So But that's what it took for the people to recognize God, right? Right. Which this is, is the same message that God was trying to give before. Right, which is fine and great. I'm just saying when people cherry pick that verse out, it's like I feel like they're doing it's like my life is gonna be perfect and awesome and strife free because God said so. Yay. But it's like these people were in the middle of being punished when that verse was given to them. Yeah, and certainly some of them would have had family members who didn't choose to go into exile willingly, right? And they're going away from their homeland and their property. This isn't a happy time. Right, right. But this is my life verse. Everything will be perfect. Yeah, and interestingly, for most of these individuals who are hearing this, they're probably going to die before this first comes to fruition in terms of being let back into the land. So where we misuse it and say, surely in my lifetime, God is going to give me all that I want. Really, the people who are hearing this are saying, my grandkids are going to get to go back to the family farm in Israel. Aaron, would you commission me to say to people if they say that Jeremiah 29 11 is their favorite verse or their life verse can I tell them you will die before that verse comes to fruition in your life can I say that to them I don't know that I would just walk up and say that to them without (laughs) any fronting of it or couching it in explaining to them the historical background that the people who heard that Mm -hmm. knew that they would die in Babylon by the rivers of Babylon yeah, nice. by the rivers of Babylon. And as they as they are there, they are praying a blessing on, upon those who would dash the Babylonians' babies' heads against rocks. Mm. So it's a really gruesome picture. So if you can couch it in all of that, yes, please say that. All right. I may just recklessly throw my statement at them, but most likely I won't do any of it. Yeah, unless they have a tattoo. If they have it tattooed on them, you just can't say anything about it. Because they have to live with that the rest of their life. Well, you can get tattoos covered up. Maybe it'd be all the, right. Fair game. Maybe it'd be the nudge they need to finally cover up that Jeremiah twenty nine eleven tattoo. In Jeremiah thirty one, we encounter a very significant portion of this book, especially as we read it on this side of the covenantal divide. I'd like to point out how significant this new covenant actually is, especially when it's contrasted with the description of Israel as they're going into the exile. So if you remember back to Jeremiah 17, it's recorded that the sin of Judah is inscribed with an iron stylus, with a diamond point. It is engraved on the tablet of their hearts. So the way that Israel is operating, it's like sin is permanently inscribed upon their hearts, But in the new covenant work of God, that sin that was written with a diamond-tipped pencil has been erased, and instead it's going to be the, the
the name of the Lord. It will be God's teaching that's inscribed on their hearts. So there's a huge shift in what happens through God's covenantal working as they move out of exile and ultimately in Jesus Christ as he inaugurates the new covenant. There's a heart transformation that's really hard to describe here. This is like one of the most important things I think in Jeremiah is seeing this contrast between Israel under the old covenant with permanently etched sin on their hearts and now with the new covenant, this prophecy of permanently etched knowledge of God on their hearts. I mean, that's a massive change. The land purchase is kind of a weird thing. Yeah. Is it a field in Babylon? No, it's actually a field in Israel. Oh. Because it's Jeremiah buying this field that's pretty much worthless if they are going to be in exile forever. But it's a great investment if God is going to bring them back into the land. So it's a visual picture of what God is about to do. And by about to, I mean in 70 years from the time he did it. But of course, with all of the hope that we grab onto with the new covenant, the removal of sin, and the inscription of the teaching and name of the Lord, we can end our section for this week with God's promise in Jeremiah 32, 40, where he says that I will make a permanent covenant with them. I will never turn away from doing good to them, and I will put fear of me in their hearts so they will never again turn away from me. I will take delight in them to do what is good for them, and with all my heart and mind, I will faithfully plant them in this land. So the section does kind of close out nicely. Yeah. 32. Yeah, it closes out. And then next week, so this week where we picked up with all the hopelessness, next week we'll pick up with Israel's restoration. Okay. As I was reading Second Thessalonians Chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Don't be easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord had already begun. Don't believe them, even if they've claimed to see a vision or something. I was thinking about a time in my past where I thought my family had been raptured and I had been left behind. I don't think the Thessalonians for one moment believed that they would be taken away from the earth forever. I I think that they assumed Christ had returned and was neglecting them and ignoring them, or that perhaps even upon his return, he failed to be the powerful Lord and King that they had heard about. So what was Paul doing here as he's writing this letter? He's encouraging them as he reassures them that, Christ has not come back. He didn't forget about them. And so he's enlightening them in this chapter here about the events prior to the Lord's coming and that they should stand firm. And then he exhorts them in chapter 3 for prayer and then admonishes the people who are being idle. Yeah, exactly. He's working to encourage them in the faith and to cause them to be more productive Christian citizens in the world that they're in. So sometimes when Christians talk about the end times or Jesus's return, they talk about it almost in a way that makes you think, nothing that I do in this life really matters. So I just shouldn't really care about anything because it's all going to blow up or Jesus is going to come and take me away. But that's the very opposite of what Paul is getting at here. 
Here, he wants people not to be idle or busybodies, but to work quietly to provide for themselves and to do so based on an exhortation of those people by the Lord Jesus Christ. So he wants them to work hard, to not grow weary in doing well, and to pursue gospel advance as a pray for him and partner with him in his ministry. I would want to point out that multiple times in 2 Thessalonians, Paul calls the Thessalonians to stand firm and to hold on to the traditions that you were taught. Often in English Bible translations, they'll translate that word tradition as something else, and it contributes to this wrong idea that any tradition is bad in the Christian life and discipleship. So I'm thankful for the way that the CSB translates this is these individuals are instructed to hold to the traditions, both that they read about and that they heard orally from the apostles. So is Paul being kind of, is his tone a little bit different here than in First Thessalonians? Just being like, I got, I just told you about a lot of this stuff. Yeah, Come on, it, guys. You know, I think so. I think in First Thessalonians, he almost sounds a little bit more fearful that they're going to leave the faith altogether, in that there are some major errors. If you remember from our reading in Acts, he did not have a lot of time with them. So now he's writing a second letter to them, and it seems like he shifted from like delicately dealing with the situation to being a little bit more forthright in commanding. He, he doesn't include anything about his desire to see them, at least not at the same length that he does in First Thessalonians. He just seems a little bit more straight to the point almost as if he's not frustrated with them that he needs to re-articulate this, but that he is about to get frustrated with them. So it kind of reminds me of situations like in The Lord of the Rings where Gandalf will relate to people in different ways. And First Thessalonians is kind of like Gandalf sending like a letter to Frodo when he's at the Prancing Pony that should have gotten to him way earlier. Like, these are important instructions, so you need to obey it, but there's no problem with him. But it's also not quite like Galatians, like when Gandalf is talking to Bilbo and Bilbo's accusing him of trying to take the ring and he gets all big and powerful. So it's not quite like that. It's somewhere in the middle. We transition now to First Timothy, these letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, are sometimes referred to as the pastoral epistles. I don't prefer that title because neither Timothy nor Titus were pastors. So in the course of our discussion, I might call them the so-called pastoral epistles to be a little bit pretentious about it, but we should recognize that 1st Timothy and 2nd Timothy and Titus are written to apostolic representatives but not to pastors. In fact, that seems like it's the whole problem. It seems like the elders of these assemblies can't be trusted to follow Paul's instructions. So he has sent Timothy and Titus to deal with different issues in the church. AJ, as we start reading these letters, what are some of the observations that you had or particular points of interest that you think would be worth discussing on a podcast for those reading the Bible with us? Yeah, I think that was a good way to introduce the the book of First Timothy because it seems like a lot of times when we hear First Timothy referenced, it's in reference to qualifications for being a pastor or a deacon. And it seems like that's what the book is reduced down to. Whereas there's a lot more stuff in the book that's 
more than just a pastoral epistle for primarily like a handbook of like, here's what you need to look for a pastor for a pastoral committee or something. Yeah, exactly. But the book is written to Timothy and he is, you know, addressing some of these issues because of these bad leaders. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, it seems like two of the leaders might have been Hymenaeus and Alexander, these individuals who have made shipwreck of their faith, individuals that Paul says they, they should be disciplined out of the church. They need, to, they, they need to be delivered to Satan. That's the kind of language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5 for church discipline. But in that instance, it's for a sexual immorality issue. Here, it's for a doctrinal infidelity issue. Which disqualifies them. Exactly. Yeah, doctrinal infidelity for Paul disqualifies you in the way that's, same way that sexual immorality does. So if you do one, you might as well do the other? That's like the worst way to think <laughs> about like any sin. But people think of that way. Oh. You know, I've thought that way before. I mean, we do this in non-sin things too, but just in like bad habit things. So we'll be like, oh man, I already started eating this can of Pringles. I may as well eat the whole can. Mm. And I think that's exactly what we could be tempted to do with sin. So about the only warm thing in the letter is where Paul addresses Timothy, right? As his son. Yeah, I think that's right. Yikes. And it's really tough to know everything that's going on in here because we don't have all of the background issues. But Paul certainly shows warmth and affection for Timothy. And you can imagine Paul sending this guy to pursue pastoral-like work in an unfaithful church. This guy's going to be met with resistance. He's not going to have a lot of friends there. He's being put up to a really difficult task. So you can see why Paul is really trying to encourage him along the way. Uh, and even even the content of the letter, like the qualifications for elders and deacons, this, this has nothing to do with their jobs and everything to do with their character. These churches are not living in God-honoring ways. So what Timothy is being set out to do is to tell people, you're not living in God-honoring ways, and nobody likes to hear that. And, and they're doing things that Timothy's going to say, you can't do that. And no one likes to be told no. So Timothy's in for a, a rough situation here. Well, it's interesting that you note that first, because it seems like some of the issues with these individuals is that they're probably getting drunk. And Paul wants to be clear, hey, I'm not saying you can't drink any alcohol, like have have that glass of wine, that's fine. But also confront those individuals who are living sinfully. So there's a lot of specific issues related to this. These, Where is it? At, where is this at? Ephesus? Well, it seems like Paul's writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus. So if Saint you look Ephesus. at chapter 1, verse 3, there we go. when Paul went to Macedonia, he urged Timothy to remain in Ephesus so that he can instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. So there are individuals who are teaching false doctrine, and these individuals are especially leading away women in the assembly. So we learned this in um, 2 Timothy, actually. So in 2 Timothy 6, he says, For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
Well, when we're interpreting First Timothy, where Paul tells Timothy, let the women learn in quietness, we need to keep in mind what he's saying in Second Timothy 3 about women who are being led astray, always learning, and never able to come to knowledge of, a, of the truth. So there are a lot of contextual features here that might illuminate our reading. The problem is it's a little vague. Can I ask you a question? Go for it. That's that's why I'm here. Love it. First Timothy 5, verse 20. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. How do you take that verse and... How would it or wouldn't it be implemented at the Resurrection Church? That's an insightful question, Matthew. I think it's helpful for us to try to imagine what kind of scenario Paul is imagining and talking about. And I think he's talking about individuals who are refusing to follow his teaching. We could imagine individuals like those in 1 Corinthians 5 involved in sexual immorality. And I think What's in view here are people who are living in unrepentant sin, perhaps even celebrating that sin, people who are adopting false doctrine and leading others astray, and you have to deal with these things publicly. So the way it would work out in our church, I'd say, is the way that you've seen it work out in our church, like in a family discussion forum a couple of weeks ago, as we publicly talked about an individual who was posting photos that hint at sexual immorality at play. And we talk about it as a church in appropriate ways, but we try to follow a process where we work with the individual first. So we want to um, deal with a problem with as few people as possible and call someone to repentance. But in it all, even as we perhaps would take formal church discipline regarding whatever the issue might be, our goal is always to restore people and to bring them back into the fellowship of the church, while at the same time not ignoring it, lest other people in the assembly think sin isn't a big deal. We can do whatever we want. So dealing with it publicly kind of helps us sense the gravity of sin. Okay. That's helpful. I think that is right. Even, you know, there are different levels. It's important to keep in mind the the context here and it seemed like some of what Paul was dealing with here were maybe more urgent to the health of the church. Someone who is not ever at church is still a member that we're addressing sin. It's like, okay, maybe there's a lot more leash as far as like how you deal and like when you talk publicly about it. But yeah. someone who is a, leader in the church and their sin, you maybe would address that in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. So in some instances, and I would probably say most instances that I've observed, the people who are in unrepentant sin are not showing up at church and not trying to keep in touch with other members. So it still needs to be dealt with. But like you're saying, in this situation, there are people actively misleading people in the assembly, and it's affecting the behavior of other people in the church because doctrine always drives behavior, and and that's what's going on in here. So Paul is more urgently pushing for Timothy to deal with these issues. Okay, I think we have to talk about 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. It's interesting because people have different kind of 
filling in the background of what's happening here. Kind of what you were saying before, how we, you know, we don't actually have all that. So I'll, some of this depends on what you think is happening here. What is Paul trying to address? Is this a situational thing just for this, these people that, that Timothy is working with? Is this a, do these verses, are these applied to everybody? I don't know. Some of these seem very harsh towards women, which kind of goes against what we've seen in what we've read so far, like in 1 Corinthians 11, you know, where there's instruction about women should be able to prophesy and pray in this certain way. Well, here it seems like it's almost, you know, contradictory to that, which makes you think this is a situational thing. And if that's true, then this is the one of the main pieces that people say that women shouldn't preach. And so if we take this as a situational thing, there's a lot more uh, reason to think that women should be able to preach or in a pastoral office or something. Yeah, probably what's intended is a parallelism between verse 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived first, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. So probably that protos first is intended or implied in the second sentence. In other of Paul's writings, he makes clear that Adam is involved in this. Um, So I think we need to be a little bit cautious about reading too much into this section. So we shouldn't say that because Paul here addresses the Genesis narrative that women should submit to men because of the order of creation. So this command isn't grounded in Genesis. We shouldn't say that. Well, I think, I think we have to back up a little bit and look more carefully at the text. In verse 11, it says, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. But then we should ask submission to what or to whom? And, and I think probably the answer is full submission to the apostolic teaching. Then he goes on to say, I do not allow a woman to teach. So like doctor, doctrinal submission. Doctrinal submission. Okay. To those elders or Timothy who are teaching the apostolic truth that's been handed on to them. I do not allow a woman to teach. And every church that I know of applies this somewhat situationally because there are women teachers at some level. And even complementarians who use the Danvers statement as what identifies them as complementarians have some flexibility on this, on whether or not a woman could teach an adult Bible class or even preach a sermon. So you could be a complementarian, according to the Danvers statement, and preach on a Sunday. You just couldn't be a pastor. And then I do not allow a woman to have authority over a man. That doesn't mean that every man can have authority over women. Do you see what I'm saying? Like we might be implying something that we shouldn't imply. And then instead, she is to remain quiet. The uh, the word for authority here, authority over, are you familiar with? I forget it. It's like or something like that. This is the only place that that is used in the whole Bible it, and is sparse in any other Greek, like, contemporary letters. And so 
another reason for saying that this is a very situational text or portion admonishment is also because of that very specific word that he uses. Yeah, so that word doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament um, or the Old Testament, I believe, in the Greek edition. Some have argued that nobody should exercise that kind of authority because over it's like anybody else. Because it's, it's like a, a belligerent authority. Exactly. It's, it's a oppressive authority. Yeah. I, I don't know what to think about that, but I do know that we can't just apply the inverse of a command to the opposite gender. So for example, when Paul in 1 Timothy 2.8 says, therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument— He's not saying that he's okay with women not praying and arguing and being angry. So you can't just apply the opposite of a command. So you can't say, because Paul restricts women from having this kind of authority over men, therefore, men can have that authority over any woman. You, you can't do that. That's not a logical—like, it, it does not follow. It's a fallacy. It's a logical fallacy. So I think we have to be careful there, um, but I would also say that eventually when you get to the qualification list, there are still good reasons for not appointing women as elders, regardless of what you make of 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 is a really challenging text because whatever you say about the permanency and literalness of verse 11, you probably also have to say about verse 15, but she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. And most Protestants want to deny that bearing children will bring eschatological salvation. These are really tough things. I think there's some background with the Artemis cult you know, Artemis is this deity, the god of um, hunting and childbearing, I think. So, like, there's some issues there. You know, the the Artemis temple in Ephesus is one of the seven wonders of the world. And the guy who lists them out says it's the most magnificent of them all. So it may be that Paul is dealing with some issues there. I I just don't know what all is going on there. You have to ask, why is Paul appealing to Adam and Eve? That's in this my context? next question. Why, why is that even there? It seems a little strange. It is it, strange. It doesn't quite follow. And I think it probably has something to do with the ancient myth of the birth of Artemis, where she was born before her brother, I think Apollos, maybe I forget, but in that myth, she's born first and then she helps deliver her twin brother. And then they grow up and they age like 20 years in a day or something. But but I think there's probably something connected here to the Artemis cult. Um, I'm not totally sure, but I think what they're trying to say, that there may be a counteracting of some myth where women were formed first and they're the true rulers or something, so therefore they should subjugate men. And men are the people who brought sin into the world. Maybe there's a myth like that. I'm not totally sure. I have never preached this text or done full research. My beliefs about men and women in the church are not based on this text because it's not super clear to me. Okay. Could we could we maybe come back to where we are saying that if you're reading someone 
and they're relying heavily on this passage for their complementarian views or views of women in the church, maybe be a little wary and try to read other passages that aren't as maybe... Yeah, I think it's tough. I think people relying on this text would say it's very, very clear. Sure. And I would want to tell them, I think verse 11 is just as clear as verse 15. She will be saved through childbearing. Like these these are not as clear as we might want to make them out to be. That doesn't mean that the conclusions someone draws from this text are wrong, but it might be that they're putting too much weight on this text instead of relying on other more clear text. So when it comes to at least the appointment of women as elders, I would say that's not biblical because both in 1 Timothy and in Titus, so on Crete, a separate situation, there is no provision for female elders. In 1 Timothy 3, there's a provision for female deacons. There's not for female elders. So I think we have good reason for holding our positions. But I would just not want to leverage 1 Timothy 2 dogmatically because it's not super clear. I would draw attention to a book edited by Tom Schreiner and Andreas Kossenberger, I believe, called Women in the Church, the second edition. I think that's the title where they just talk about this text, and it's this huge monograph. But they have multiple contributors. I think it's probably really helpful, especially if you're looking for the best of complementarian treatments of this text. I think that's helpful. Yeah, I hope to preach through First Timothy for our church sometime, and I'll be able to deal with it in more depth. I only have like a very minimal amount of research and exploration into it. But AJ, you've been reading it. You've been thinking about it. Help us think through this. I just wanted to maybe bullet point just some of the stuff that you had already said is I agree that it's very unclear what's going on here. I think it's possible that there were women who were teaching in a way that was oppressive. And so Paul might be addressing them specifically um, yeah, and if you think about that reference in Second Timothy 5, where there are gullible women who have been led astray, if these women are teaching, then situationally, certainly, Paul would tell them, don't teach. But there may be more than that. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't seem out of character for the problems that are in this church, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that's most baffling to me is the um, verse 13 what is the why is the reference to genesis there like it's a big question mark to me yeah and um, and i think it has to be a lot be, of people take it the wrong way I, yeah sure. i don't think it's just hey this is an appeal to created order i think it has to be there's wrong teaching going on there's some false teaching here which we know is true and perhaps it's related to like perhaps the false teaching is reversing this and then drawing conclusions about it So Paul sets it right. Or is it just saying that just like Eve was deceived, so these women are deceived here in what they're teaching, like content-wise? Yeah, that that very well could be. And and you think about later on when Paul gives the instructions for enrolling widows, he says young widows should marry and have children instead of being idle and gossiping. So this verse about them being saved through childbearing— may be more related to that in Paul trying to curb this, like, hey, let's gain money from the church, 
even though we're young and we could work or we could get married um, and we're gossiping and we're gullible, we've been convinced by these false teachers. I don't think he's trying to say anything more than that, but I just don't know. Yeah, I think that's helpful. I think that's a really good connection. I, I like that. To just explain why I don't like this verse 13 being connected to the created order is because wouldn't that, you know, working that out, doesn't that mean that you were saying earlier that different churches apply what it means for a woman to teach in different situations? Well, wouldn't it, you know, you'd have to apply it in every area of life because of because it's a created order thing. Like women should never teach ever, you know, any type of authority over a man in any situation, right? Yeah. Which and, we do not believe. And not, not anyone. No one really follows that because women right. do teach. And I know there's a grammatical way to pair teach or have authority over a man so that you can't teach a man or exercise authority over a man. But I think it's more clearly women cannot teach, period, you know, like regardless of who they're teaching. And even the most conservative churches I know permit women to teach. They just draw restrictions at certain ages. So it it is really tough. But I think the problems are bigger than that because then you'd have to say, well, which creation account? Because in one creation account, in Genesis 1, it appears that the man and woman are created at the exact same time. In Genesis 2, it appears that there's a distinction, man first, then woman. But then even there, in the created order, it seems like the whole point is unity. They they were one flesh. They were one, not one had authority over another. So even that like, yeah. is a little bit challenging to me. Certainly, we shouldn't have women as elders based on the elder qualification list. You know, there's no option for female elders there. There is an option for female deacons. I think that's pretty clear. That's that's kind of what convinces me of our view. Do I think it's sinful for a woman to ever preach on a Sunday? No, not necessarily. Some churches do that. That's not our practice. I think my point would be that these verses are highly contested. I think people within our own assembly would look at them somewhat differently. I I want to say that probably we read way too much into this and then ignore really difficult questions about it. But then I think egalitarians, for example, fail to pay careful enough attention to 1 Timothy 3 and deal with some of the issues there. So these things are really complicated. I I listened to a lady who I highly respect, Lynn Kohick, talking on a podcast today about this text. And and I think she makes some good arguments, but I think she's also missing some things. And I, I would just want people in our church to be able to talk about it that way of, look, that text probably probably isn't what informs all that we think about these issues. And the Bible says other clear things. And we need to grab onto those and hold on to them and then keep working to find clarity with First Timothy 2. I, I would also say one, one final thing. For those who are very dogmatic of, no, we need to apply this exactly in all times and all places, you then have to deal with texts like First Timothy 6, where Paul says, all who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly beloved. So we have to deal with historical, cultural 
background issues there as well, because nobody that I know is saying, yeah, if we had slavery in the U.S., we would be saying slaves like we did, you know, like we did back in our history. And this text was applied to them. Most of us would be saying, no, that's a bad application of the text. You need to rework this. So there are really tough interpretive issues in First Timothy, and Lord willing, we will encounter those in a sermon series in the years ahead. But what we know and what is clear to us, we can receive just as Timothy did, and we can operate as Timothy was instructed to when Paul said, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some people have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. So we can take that as a word of encouragement for us to obey the scriptures and to maintain steadfastness in the faith. Thank you for joining us on the Resurrection Church Podcast. This was week 43. If you have any other uh, questions rolling around in your brain about the Resurrection Church, you can find more information on resurrectionmn.org. I was just going to say that... Did you raise the Yeah. What were you going to say? AJ, do you wish I'd be happy to have